0: In the case of David, think about this church, a king had to die and that death would usher in the kingdom of the Lord's anointed. For David, that death was the death of King Saul. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisishoreline.com. You may have heard the short story of the patient who was called in to meet with his doctor. And he was told that he needed to come in immediately because it was an emergency. I need you to come right now to the doctor's office. And so the doctor says to the patient, listen, I have bad news, but I also have worse news. And so the patient says, okay, uh, all right, I can handle it. So what's the bad news? And the doctor says, well, the bad news is you have 24 hours to live. And the patient says, What could be worse than that? That's the worst news ever. And the doctor said, well, the the, the worst news is I forgot to tell you yesterday. Uh, (laughs) As silly as that is, death is inevitable. It's inevitable for every single one of us. In the movie, What About Bob? The little boy tells Bob, one in one people will die. Everyone's going to die. And he's telling that to a mental health patient who is stressing out over it. Death is a reality for all of us. And we're going to see today how... David responds to the death of Saul. So for the last five weeks, if you're not familiar with what we've been going through, we've been studying 1 Samuel, and now we're sweeping into 2 Samuel, looking at the life of David through the lens of Christ. It's very easy for us to take an Old Testament narrative and try to make it about us, and make the Bible, make us the hero of the story. And what we've been looking at is that, no, 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 Christ is the centerpiece of the story. Luke 24 tells us that Jesus went to two of his disciples after the resurrection, and he walked them through from the very beginning of the Old Testament all the way through a sweeping story of where he was illuminated in the text. And so what we want to do is look at every passage of scripture and say... How would Jesus teach this if he were sharing this story on the road to Emmaus? If we were with him and we said, hey, Jesus, where do you fit into this story? He would say, this is where the gospel is. This is where I am. So even though the people of Israel had been desiring a king and God had provided them one who literally was head and shoulders above the rest of uh, the kingdom, Saul, their king, had failed. He had failed God and he had failed them. And I would say this way, the greatest specimen that mankind could produce ended up being an utter failure. And so the people didn't need another king like Saul, another king who was almost as tall or maybe a little bit better looking. They needed a king who didn't have the outward trappings, but who was a man after God's own heart, a man who had the character that was after the heart of God. And that was, of course, David. Now, a lot has developed since chapter 20. I told you last week we're going to stop in chapter 20 and your assignment, show of hand, no, I won't do that, uh, but hopefully honor system, you read chapters 21 through the end of uh, 1 Samuel. And so a lot has developed, and in case you didn't read that, that's okay. I want to kind of fill you in and give you some of that story, those those 11 chapters. So there seems to be in those chapters an overall theme. And the overall theme is an endless pursuit of King Saul after David. And David continues kind of to be almost split screen. He continues to be responding back to Saul with the best attitude ever. He continues to respond with grace and with kindness and with honor. And so as we look through that story, just to summarize, David flees and goes to the priests. The priests pull out Goliath's enormous sword and they basically feed him and supply him unlawfully. Later, Jesus uses that as an example with his disciples, but these priests end up being executed by one of Saul's henchmen. He was a non-Israelite employee, you could say. And so David takes that blood guilt upon himself, and he says, I'm responsible for their death. I'm responsible for their blood. And so then David flees to an area called Gath, and he's, he's almost captured. But right at the last moment, he does kind of this, like, now I have no, you know, other option. Let me just throw a Hail Mary here. And he begins to drool down his beard and act like he's insane. And so the king is like, guys, who invited this guy? Like, I don't know who this guy is, but this is definitely, is this David, the one that they've been singing about? They've made all these incredible songs about this guy? Get him out of here. And so David kind of gets out of there, um, and he ends up in a cave, probably the lowest moment of his life. And... Basically, at that point, um, we learned that everyone who is in distress, everyone who uh, was in debt, the Bible says, and everyone who is bitter in soul, they show up at the cave. So that was probably a fun party, right? Everyone who's broke, distressed, and bitter, they all show up to the cave, like, hey, we heard this is an awful place to be, and misery loves company, so we thought we'd hang out with you, David. And so um, what happens there, though, it's very cool. David suddenly shifts and becomes their commander. And he begins to take all, uh, in all those who are distressed and full of dead and just overwhelmed with life. And he begins to become their captain. And so David now is no longer unarmed. Now he has Goliath's sword. He's no longer alone. He now has 400 men, even though they're all you know, somewhat discouraged and broke. And so David starts writing music, and a lot of the psalms flow out of this moment. No doubt he's written a lot of music during this time period. Clearly, if you want to know what genre of music, the Bible doesn't say, but it's probably country music, because in country music, you tend to lose your wife and your dog and your your truck and your boat. Um, But, joking, um, there's this obvious moment or two where he has a chance to kill Saul. It's right there. He's able to kill him. He actually approaches it like this. The Lord has given you into my hand. The Lord has just given you to me. I didn't have to go and find you and cut through the army to get to you. God has given you to me. And yet, even though he saw the providential hand of God just giving him the life of Saul, David refuses to be the one to utter that blow. I'm not going to be the one to take the life of what I call the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. And so David ends up in this story, meeting an incredible woman named Abigail. There's a whole series we could do on Abigail and how she's kind of a, a picture of the church. We're not gonna go into that allegory today. Uh, but David ends up marrying Abigail, even at the same time as his wife, here we go, Michal, all right, even as she was given away to someone else by her father Saul. And so in one more final standoff, late at night, David stands on one side of a hill and Saul stands on the other, and David holds up a water jug, and he holds up a spear that belonged to Saul. And he says to him, like, hey, just so you know, I was there next to you. And I had the ability to take your life with Abishai, my commander. And, and, it, and it was clear that God was giving you to me. In fact, chapter 26, 8 through 11 says this. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I will not strike him twice. In other words, he's been trying to pin you to the wall, David. Let me exact revenge. This is the moment. Let me just do it. It'll take one time. I won't have to do this multiple times. So verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So, hey, Saul, remember that spear you kept throwing at me? Yeah, here it is. I'm holding it. And I had the chance to pin you to the ground, and I didn't take advantage of that. God has given you to me, but again, I refuse to take your life. Now, at this point, David realizes it's never going to stop. This is just going to be my life ad nauseum until I die or until Saul dies. And so he makes a strange choice in chapter 27 to defect to the Philistine army. Very strange. he ends up striking up a conversation and a friendship with the king of Gath named Achish. Uh, And Achish really trusts him and begins to make him his own personal bodyguard. Now, David's 400 discouraged men are now, they've turned a good corner, okay, so they're getting out of debt. They're now much more encouraged, and they've grown to 600 men. In fact, many of them are known as mighty men, and they go to live in Ziklag for about a year and a half, and they help Achish with his different exploits. So just follow along. In the meantime, Samuel the prophet has died, and Saul sees this Philistine army line up for battle in front of his Israelite army, and so he begins to panic. He begins to call out to God. Well, he can't hear from God anymore. So he begins to turn to other means. He says, let me just go to sleep and see if I have a dream. Don't have a dream. Let me think of another way I can hear from God. God, would you speak to me? Well, then he decides with the, of the silence to consult, of all things, to consult a medium. A woman who will kind of be a spiritist. And she, he goes to her so that she'll like, conjure up the spirit of Samuel. And so, obscure passage of scripture, but First Samuel 28 says this. The Lord, this is Samuel speaking. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. You'll be dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So in other words, tomorrow your army is going to lose. And you and your sons are going to die. And David is going to receive the kingdom. So this isn't exactly great news, is it? Imagine hearing tomorrow you're going to die. And so Saul is absolutely floored, literally falls on the ground. And in the meantime, David is lining up with Achish in the back of the Philistine army, realizing he's about to walk into an army that's going to battle against his own people. And, and so, um, literally, the Philistines turn and go, wait, hold on. Who are you bringing with you? Who's this? Isn't this David? Why are you bringing him to this fight? And, and I love this part of um, 1 Samuel. They start going, didn't they write a song about him? They, they literally do that. If you remember our study from a few weeks ago, they're like, I've heard this music. I've heard about Saul killing thousands and David tens of thousands. And so I'm sure David rolls his eyes. And he's like, does, does anyone not know that song? <laughs> Everyone knows this song. And so David, he, he gets kicked out basically and he heads home only to find out when he gets home, the Amalekites have raided his town. They've raided Ziklag. They burned it to the ground and they've taken all of the women, including David's wives. And so we learn that the people that were discouraged, now were encouraged and they've grown. Now they're so discouraged. They're like, we're just going to stone David. We're going to kill him. And it says they were bitter in their soul again. So remember, we have 600 men, very discouraged, and now they've lost everything. But the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, write that verse down. I want you to go back and read this later. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says this incredible moment where this is basically the end of David's, you know, um, life prior to being truly king and this is the moment where we're going to put him into the greatest crucible the greatest test we're going to kick him while he's down and we're going to see where does he turn to where is his hope is he going to turn to a medium is he going to turn to his own strength is he going to turn where does he go and it says in first samuel 30 verse 6 that david strengthened himself in the lord wow this was the moment when all was potentially lost that david could have given into despair and discouragement and given up on god And yet, in that moment, he turns to Yahweh, and he begins to strengthen himself in the Lord. And that's what it means, church, to be a man after God's own heart, not looking outwardly for salvation or hope, uh, but inwardly, we yield in submission to the goodness of God, and we recall the faithfulness of God. And so we don't let circumstances weaken us. We, like Jesus did in the garden, we strengthen ourselves by reminding ourselves of the will of God and submitting to the will of God and the person and work of God. And so, in that moment, he prays, and God shows him chase down these um, Amalekites, and with his army, he ends up getting everything that he lost back, every single thing, including, whew, including his wives. And so, in the meantime, as that's happening, split screen, the Philistines are actually defeating Israel in the battle. And Saul's sons get cut down in the fight. And that includes Jonathan. And then the last moment, Saul realizes, I'm about to be killed. And so he's got his armor bearer with him, which is kind of a glorified caddy, right? So instead of carrying your clubs, he's carrying your sword and shield. And so he says to his armor bearer, I want you to strike me. I want you to to kill me. Uh, And his armor bearer refuses. So Saul takes his own sword and then just falls upon it. And the armor bearer sees that that happens. It says in the, in the text that he checks and sees that Saul is dead. Then he turns on his own sword and follows suit and dies. And thus we come to the end of 1 Samuel uh, and we open up 2 Samuel chapter 1. And what we just read and what we're going to study is the news that came to David. So if you're taking note, here's the outline that we're going to follow today. We're going to see in verses 1 through 10 the news, the actual news report. And then we're going to see the reaction Of David and his army in verses 11 through 16 and then we're going to see the lament that David teaches all of the Israelites to sing in verses 17 through 27. Now as we study this together today I want you to notice how David does not rejoice in the news of Saul's death. I want you to see how he reacts and continues to have amazing character even when it's clear that he'll now become king. And so what we're going to do is as we study this, we're going to learn a little bit how to grieve and lament, but more importantly than that, we're going to see how Christ is a true and better David even when it comes to mourning and loss, okay? So let's look at the news starting in verse 1. It says, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day... Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, this is, uh, this is important. Whenever you tore your clothes, you had ashes or dirt on your head, that was a visible sign of, of grief, of loss, that you were in the, the process of mourning. And so David sees this man coming and he knows that he's bringing bad news. He, he's maybe wearing all black. He's in a funeral procession. This is bad news. So what's the news? If someone ever comes to you and says, you need to sit down, I have some news for you. That you know what's coming, right? That's going to be bad news. And so this was an 80-mile journey that would have taken a few days to travel. And notice verse 3. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And, of course, you can imagine David uh, very intensely, how did it go? Tell me. So you're coming with news of death. How did it go? Who won? I want to know the story. What happened? And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. At this point, I'm like, you're being too vague. What do you mean the people have fallen? Which people? And then he says, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Wow. This is a huge news moment. Now, how David responds to this is to confirm proof. I want to know proof. This is quite a claim to make. So how can you prove that? And so verse 5, David said to the young man who told him this, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, Well, here's my story, and I'm sticking to it. He says, Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. I just happened to be there, David. I don't know, I was just walking by, and I happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And he called out to me and said, please come help me. And so I you know, was a little busy, but I stopped my plans for the day, and I came over to assist Saul. And so verse 8 says, he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, and I killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. I was, it was a mercy kill. Like he, was already, he was already in pain. I just put him, to, put him out of his misery. And then I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. You can kind of see him pulling them out of the, the bag at this point. Here's the crown of Saul. Here's the armlet, just to confirm that I'm not lying. Now, as we read this, there should be a little bit of suspicion that rises to the surface if you've read 1 Samuel. Because that's not the account that we read in 1 Samuel. That's a completely contradictory claim. You see, there's a strong reason not to believe this braggadocious claim of this Amalekite. Okay, follow me. Yes, he does have Saul's crown and he has the armlet. Yes. But how do we know he didn't just run in and plunder that from the battle? You see, we're told by the narrator in 1 Samuel 31, verse 5, which might be on the same page. You can look right over in your Bibles or in your scripture journals. Saul had already fallen on his sword. He'd already fallen on his sword. His armor bearer had confirmed he already died before he fell on his sword. So David knows also that Saul's not likely to just be alone by himself with no royal assistant, with no armor bearer. And then turn and ask, of all people, an Amalekite to end his life. We kind of can see a little suspicion here. So what's actually happening, many scholars believe, is that this young man came to tell David that he killed David's enemy Saul. So he's boasting about it to David so that maybe David would reward him. Maybe he's thinking, I'm going to curry favor with David by telling him that I killed Saul. I mean, hey, if David killed Goliath and he was promised a wife then maybe I'll get a cabinet position in his new kingdom. Maybe I'll be the one known for killing Saul, and I'll be promoted and given, I don't know, maybe a chunk of land and a wife, I'll uh, get a government job. Uh, so to just say, hey, you know what? I was walking by, I found the king dead, so I grabbed his crown. That's not really gonna get you a lot of applause, right? But if you said I was the one that kind of killed him, then you would be, um, you'd give, be given some notoriety. So most scholars believe that his tale is completely fabricated, It's made up, it's a complete lie. But notice what happens next. The reaction of David was not what he was expecting. Look at the reaction in verses 11 and 12. It says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You tell someone news and they completely respond the opposite of what you're expecting. Oh, boy. David responds by, by doing what you do when you mourn, tearing his clothes, weeping, and then fasting, not eating. Indeed, when you first hear that someone has died that you love... The last thing on your mind is a, is a bowl of cereal. You're not hungry when you hear that someone has died. In fact, there's an initial shock that's so heavy that for many of us it's hard to even process what, the news that we're hearing. Uh, it, it just defies rational thought. Your appetite evaporates. You almost have to be told by someone, you need to eat. Please eat something because I know you're grieving and you're dealing with this news. But, but, but eat something. And so David hears the news that his beloved friend Jonathan... Has been killed and so has Saul. Now, the implications of Saul's death have not yet really struck David. Just think about this Saul, the king of Israel, is dead. All of Saul's sons, who are the heir apparent, they were the heirs to the throne, they're dead. The prophet Samuel has already years ago anointed David as the next future king, and Samuel is dead. So now David's ascent to the throne is complete. There's no thing and no one that's standing in the way of him being the future king. But see, that isn't causing David to celebrate. He's caught up in the act of grieving and mourning the loss of Jonathan, but also the loss of Saul. And and then in that grief, he suddenly almost realizes what the messenger said. And he kind of turns to him and says, wait, hold, hold on, time out. Wait, who are you? And so look at verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? Where do you come from? And he answered, well, I'm the son of a sojourner and a Malachite." Hmm. We said earlier that was going to come back, didn't we? And so verse 14, David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That's a phrase meaning Saul the king. And then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, "I've killed the Lord's anointed." Okay, a little bit ironic. The, the, just follow me. The lie that he thought would promote him was actually the thing that condemned him. If he wouldn't have lied about that, he may not have um, died for his lie. But at first glance, we might be tempted to think that David is being fake here, like he's feigning uh, grief. He's just feigning it, like. He's secretly going, here it comes. And on the outside, he's like, oh, that's such a bad loss. Can you guys get my chariot ready? Right, no. I think it's proof um, that it's not a show. It's very clear that David's not just giving lip service. He proves it by, by genuinely being broken over Saul's death by having this lying messenger put to death. Whether he's honest about it or not, he said, I killed Saul, so by your own lips, you can... Uh, face the punishment for that. So notice with me, just as a little aside, that this young man just happens to be an Amalekite. you guys remember that the people that God had commanded Saul to wipe out prior in 1 Samuel, they were to be utterly wiped out, and he spared the king and he spared some of the sheep. Remember the, what is this bleeding of sheep and the, the mooing of cows? And, and he had kind of spared some of them. And so A little bit ironic, he didn't completely obey the Lord, uh, and that little discrepancy came back to claim ownership of killing Saul. So David does not respond with joy, he responds with sorrow. And as a songwriter, he now begins to compose a song, not just for him to sing, not just for him to reflect on, but for all of the nation of Israel to sing together. One person said this, I don't have the quote on the screen, but they said, "In, in this song, you will not hear about Saul's endless spear throwing or his jealousy. You will not hear any of that because it's an honor song. And it shows the depth of the relationship that David had with the house of Saul, how he was deeply affected by them. So let's read this song together. We call it here the the lament. It's known as the song of the bow, the bow and arrow. Uh, But we're gonna call it the lament. Now, before we read this, I think it's really important to um, point out what a lament is exactly. What do we mean by a lament? So a lament can be defined as an expression of thoughtful grief. An expression of thoughtful grief. So this is what a lament is not. A lament is not going off in a swarm of emotional gushing. We're just like, gush. But neither is it a robotic, scientific, you know, heartless, emotionless, statement okay Uh, this is a very helpful idea here Davis says this this is an incredible quote he says in a written lament the intensity of one's emotions which let's be honest we have emotions we don't need to pretend that we don't we have emotions we don't we're not ruled by them we're not guided by them but we have emotions the intensity of one's emotions unite with the discipline of one's mind to produce I love this structured sorrow isn't that great A sort of authorized version of distress, a kind of coherent agony. In a lament, therefore, words are carefully selected, crafted, and honed to express loss as closely yet fully as possible. This is something I try to practice when I see um, someone sinning, I'll write them a letter and not send it. When I see, I'll just talk with them. When I see, that someone has incurred a loss and it's close to our family, I try to write that lament down and capture some of the grief on paper. Now, we see that throughout scripture, especially in the Psalms, and I think this is an important and helpful practice, particularly for those of us who are grieving. So often, we do this incorrectly. When we're going through a hard time, we do this incorrectly. So, this is just the reality of, of our human condition. When we are overwhelmed with something, what do we do? We immediately vent on social media or we get in this long emotional rant. Maybe you don't say anything to your husband. You store it up, store it up, store it up. And then just all of a sudden, he's like, hey, honey, where do you want to go to eat tonight? And, and, and you respond with, what do you mean by that? And you're like, whoa. I just, I just didn't know Italian or, or you know American. I just was curious. And, and so um, when we do that, though, When we turn to social media, when we turn and and vent our frustrations on someone who doesn't necessarily um, know what's going on or isn't in tune with what's happening, listen, we are turning to the wrong audience, right? A lament to God is an expression of thoughtful grief that is submitted to the right audience. It's submitted to God for all to hear. And so that's what David does here. Let's read his lament together. Look at verse 17. It says, and David lamented with this lamentation over, not just Jonathan, but over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. Now, I was like, what's the book of Jashar? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. But it is hinted at in Joshua 10, 13. It's hinted at in Joshua. And apparently the book of Jashar contained poetry. Though it's not, we have to say, it was not inspired by God in its entirety, thus we don't have it in our canon of Scripture. If we were to find the book of Jashar, we would not include it in our Bibles because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture. Just because something is quoted by the Bible doesn't mean it's Scripture or it's supposed to be in the canon. So David teaches Judah this song. Look at the song. He said in verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, How the mighty have fallen. That's the title of our sermon today. And that phrase is used three times in David's song. How the mighty have fallen. He didn't say how one mighty man has fallen and the rest of those worthless bums died as well. He says how the mighty, plural, have fallen. He includes Saul in that. And then he says in verse 20, this is fascinating. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. So, Gath and Ashkelon, these are the, the territory of the enemy. He's saying, hey, don't be singing this among the Philistines. Don't let the enemies of God cheer the news about Saul's death. Don't go praising Dagon that Saul has fallen. Remember, David was consistently, from the very beginning, concerned about the glory of God and wanting the glory of God to extend to all nations. That's what incited him to fight against Goliath. He wanted to see Israel lifted up because Israel's God was lifted up in the sight of all the nations. And whenever Israel was brought down and trampled on and dishonored, that directly affected David. And and so they may have written glorious songs about him, about David, but he doesn't want people to know or sing about the death of Saul in a cheerful way. So look at verse 21. He now turns to creation. He says, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. So David here, notice he turns to creation he calls down reproach upon Gilboa the actual mountain and he's saying it should be a place that's that's burned into the memories of the troops as they memorize this song and as they're okay we have to get this line down let's sing this part of the song Gilboa the great defeat where our king and his sons were killed David says I want this to be burned into our memory let us never forget you could say David wants the actual land, though, that Saul fell upon to just dry up. And, hey, we're not to to allow this ground to ever produce something fruitful again because it caught up the blood of this great king. And so he's basically saying no one should be exempt from grief, not even the earth, not even creation. Everyone should be grieving over this. And then verse 23, he now includes the father and son together. And this is a beautiful picture. He says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They fell together. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And then he says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. who you, Clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in your apparel. And then he says it again, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. Now, notice with me in here how gracious David is as he recounts Saul back to the people so follow me here guys this is this is his chance this is David's chance to finally exact some revenge and to just decimate the memory of Saul this is his moment hey remember all the wickedness and the the horrible things that that reproachable king did to me and I was a man after God's own heart and here's what he did let me just sing it out I want everyone to remember this song well no he responds righteously I read this week about two brothers. It's a kind of funny story. Uh, they were well-known around town for their crooked business dealings. And uh, they were connected with some really shady connections. And so um, very mean, very cold-blooded. Eventually one of those brothers, the two brothers died. And the surviving brother wanted to give his dead brother a big funeral. And so he called the funeral home, made the arrangements, and he called the pastor in town and he said, listen, I'm going to make you an offer. I know you don't want to do this funeral, but I will give you $10,000 so you can put a new roof on the church. And if, if you'll eulogize my brother and call him a saint, then I will give you a big donation. So the minister said, okay, yep, I'll do it. So everyone shows up in the town, and the minister begins the service this way. He says, the man you see in this coffin was a vile and debauched individual. <laughs> He was a liar, a thief, a deceiver, a manipulator, a reprobate, a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes, careers, and lives of countless people in this city, some of whom are here today. This man did every dirty, rotten thing imaginable, but compared to his brother over here, he was a saint. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine David wanting to conjure up that kind of, of revenge, but he doesn't do that. He repays Saul's wickedness, not by reviling in return, but with kindness. And he invites the women of Israel to weep for Saul. Hey, and I don't think this is, you don't read into it, like, okay, you women weep for Saul. I'm not going to weep for him. He's inviting everyone, hey, this is something you should cry and mourn over. And then he turns, and we come to the end of the song, where he personally begins to weep over the loss of his great friend Jonathan, whom we looked at last week. Verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Here again is David's affirmation of his love, his deep abiding friendship love for Jonathan. As we mentioned last week, someone want to take this word and say, oh, surpassing the love of women, and they want to play Bible origami and kind of interpret this as, oh, see, David had a homosexual relationship with Jonathan, and that's not the case. See, that cheapens the reality of a true abiding friendship where there's mutual love, trust, and sacrifice, that we looked at last week, and it says you can't have that between two people unless there's sexual attraction involved, and and we know that's just silly. David loved Jonathan not with sexual desire, but with agape love. And that's the love that we're to show others because of what Christ has displayed in his love for us. I love what Matthew Henry says. This is very helpful. Matthew Henry said, He had reason to say that Jonathan's love was wonderful. Surely never was the like for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown over his head and to be so faithful to his rival This far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. You see, comparing Jonathan's love to the love of a wife was meant in the sense of fidelity, not sexuality. In other words, he's he's more faithful to me than a man and his wife in their marriage um, fidelity. And so, what an incredible moment where he turns to Israel, begins to sing this lament to God for all to hear, for all to memorize, for all to remember and sing. Now, I want to take a moment today and draw out three application points for us as a church. So I want you to jot these down, or if you're in the Bible app, you can follow along and um, look at these notes. So let's apply it in three ways. First of all, even though we're Christians, we still grieve and mourn the loss of any life. Any loss of life, as Christians, we mourn that. When we look at the amount of unborn children who've been aborted since 1980, did you guys know we are well over 1.5 billion worldwide As I'm preaching this sermon in 2020, 1.5 billion uh, people have been put to death. And so we grieve and mourn uh, those murders. It's right and proper to grieve when we hear that a celebrity has died. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who was kind of blown away or heartbroken to hear that Kobe Bryant and his daughter and those who were with him um, tragically died recently. Um, That is right and proper for us to feel some of that weight and some of that grief. Um, maybe when we hear a news story that comes across our feet and we hear about a, a little uh, child who has a debilitating disease or is recovering from cancer and they're doing GoFundMe uh, to try to help that family, we should have a sense of loss and mourning, uh, especially when someone passes away. We should feel that. A Ligonier ministry says, God declares in scripture that he takes no joy in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11. And neither should we. Like David in his mourning for Saul, We must see the deaths of unbelievers for what they are, tragedies caused by sin. Pray for your unsaved friends and warn them of the approach of the day of God's wrath. You see, it's even right and proper to mourn when we hear that a believer has died. Any loss of life is appropriate for us to grieve over because someone who is made in the image of God has passed from life to death. We know from the scriptures that the fall of man brought sin into the world and death through sin, but we also know this wasn't how God originally created the heavens and the earth. And so I always like to say death is an unnatural enemy that was introduced into the world when sin infected the human race because of Adam's poor choice. We know in the scriptures that Jesus wept at his friend Lazarus' tomb. He wept not just because he was an emotional guy, And not just because he loved Lazarus, but also because of the reality of our fallen condition. He was weeping over sin and death. And and now everyone who breathes the breath of life, not to be a discouragement to you this morning, but if you're here breathing the breath of life, one day that breathing will come to an end, and you will pass from this life into the next. And that reality that all will perish is sobering, and so we should mourn the loss of any life. However, secondly, because we're Christians, we don't mourn like those who have no hope, right? Though grief and mourning are a part of the human experience and and we should set some time aside to properly process death, we have to distinguish between believers and unbelievers. We really do. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is where we get this concept. says, we do not grieve like those who do not have hope. So indeed, Christ followers, we believe in what we call the living hope. The living hope is not a dead hope because we don't believe in a dead founder. You aren't here today to sit around and learn about a dead idea or a dead religion about a dead guy. We are here and we believe in the living hope, which is the resurrection from the dead. We serve a risen Savior. I said it this morning, checking into Facebook here, that he's still risen. We'll celebrate that on Easter, but every Sunday he's still risen. And and so um, we have a living hope because Jesus died on the cross by sinners for sinners and absolutely rose from the dead triumphantly and so our hope is not dead our hope is alive so for the Christian for the Christian death is not a permanent goodbye but it's a graduation it's a I'll see you soon I like what D.L. Moody said he said someday I love this you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead don't you believe a word of it At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. Amazing. But listen, please don't get this strange idea that Christians aren't supposed to grieve, right? As a principle, greater love equals greater grief. Does that make sense? Greater love equals greater grief. So we cannot expect someone who has been married and committed to their spouse for 40, for 50 plus years to just get over their loss quickly. Like, you know, when are they gonna move on? It's been a few weeks. We can't expect that. Greater love equals greater grief. David loved Jonathan deeply, and so he's going to potentially wear this grief maybe for the rest of his life. Just think about this. Every time a special day on the calendar rolls around, every feast day, every holiday, every, every time a sword or a shield or a bow that reminded him of Jonathan, that has the potential to open up um, that wound in his heart. We don't have to live in despair, though. We don't have to stay in that place. He has a written lament that he can continue to submit to God. And and we, uh, in these days, can place our hope in the resurrection power of our risen Savior. One hymn says it this way. Lift up your heads, pilgrims are weary. I don't know why I like that part of the song, but I really like that part. (laughs) See days approach, now crimson the sky. Night shadows flee, and your beloved awaited with longing at last draweth nigh. So that means thirdly, we can choose to, listen, honor someone's life even if it was skewed with failure. One of the most difficult and effectual things that I have to do as a pastor is to conduct funerals or memorial services. That is a tough thing to do. It's tough because death is filled with sorrow and loss and we have to, in those moments, give words of comfort to people who are are deeply grieving And desperately need encouragement in their anguish. But it's also effectual because when someone dies, we all begin to think about our own mortality. And we all realize, wow, death is around the corner for me even. And so we think about how short life is, how inevitable death is, and this makes us think about eternity and about what matters. And that's a good thing. But no matter whose funeral I've overseen, I think it's good and right to honor the life of someone who has died, even if it was filled with mistakes and failures. David here calls Saul, think about this, he calls him beloved, he calls him lovely, swifter than an eagle, stronger than a lion, and mighty, three different times. He exhorts the women to weep over him because he clothed them in luxury and dressed them in gold. David chooses to draw out the positive things of Saul's life and honor his memory, and you and I can do the same when we consider someone who's passed away in our lives, So I think that's a great way to apply this. But before we close, I think, again, we could just look at this from a me-centered approach and say, you know what? Thank you, Pastor. Yes, I need to be a better David in my life. And I need to honor people in my life who have died or maybe they've mistreated me and I need to be nice to that boss because he did mistreat me. And I'm gonna write a a nice little public uh, thing about him today. And I think you're missing the deeper and fuller point of this story. There's a a more Christ-centered Uh, idea in this chapter that we can't miss. And we've been saying throughout this series that Jesus is a true and better David. And and in what ways does this text show us this? If we were with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and we said, what about 2 Samuel chapter one? Jesus, where are you in this story? I think he would say something like this. First, David naturally drew those whose souls were bitter and those who were in distress And he became their captain. And he chose not to cry out against Saul, even though Saul had greatly mistreated him. David mourned and grieved and wept for those who had died, and he took no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know Jesus, according to Luke 22, 37, was numbered with the transgressors, that that he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. But as a lamb before her shears is silent, so too Jesus opened not his mouth to repay evil for evil. In fact, Jesus cried out the opposite of that, didn't he? He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I want you for a minute, in a, in a, a spirit of worship, um, to just bow your heads for a minute, close your eyes, listen to the words of Isaiah 53, as we consider David and we consider Christ. Just listen to these words. He was, this is written hundreds of years before the cross. I want you to consider this. He was despised and rejected by men All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I want to invite our worship team forward to close us in song. And I want us to be reminded today that Jesus taught us to love our enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us. In the case of David, let's think about this, church. A king had to die, and that death would usher in the kingdom of the Lord's anointed. For David, that death was the death of King Saul. In the case of Jesus, it was his own death and his subsequent resurrection that secured the guarantee of his eternal rule and reign. And this morning... Listen, the man of sorrows stands triumphant by his finished work on our behalf. Today we can worship him freely and fully because he loved us fully. He gave his life as a ransom for us and his kingdom will never come to an end. And one day he promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so in this fallen, broken world where there's sin and death and grief and tears, may we look to the living hope for our peace until our dying breath, or until he comes again in the clouds. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ, and we thank you that this incredible text shows us the importance of grief, the importance of lament. Lord, as we now begin to sing and reflect on what you have done and this wondrous mystery, Lord, remind us of the finished work on our behalf. May we cry out to you in our times of pain and in our times of rejoicing. And we pray that you administer to us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.